Okay, I'm recording. Okay, me too. We're ready. It feels very official today. I know, I don't know why. <laughs> Did you see the text that we got this week that says, we should do the episode swapping accents? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. So I do American and you do British for the whole thing. I think I would agree if you had like a less Mary Poppins it Cockney. It would be stunning. It would be offensive and people would turn it off after like two minutes. <laughs> it would be like a high school theatre production. After about the fifth oi governor and like pip pip cheerio, <laughs> people would be like, okay, that's all he's got. I've never said pip pip cheerio in my life. No. No, but that's my impression of you. Well, we all know how bad my American accent is, so it's just going to be terrible. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, no, we're not doing that at all. I'm sorry. <laughs> Shall we get a little Watchtower Weekly going? So uh, Wired has this great story very recently. The future of texting is far too easy to hack. Rich Communication Services, or RCS, is believed to be the new standard for texting by pretty much any phone carrier. So apparently this is the, the successor to SMS, as if we needed kind of an alternative to, to iMessage or whatever you use on, on Android. I think there's like a ton of different chat apps that you can set as your main messaging app in, in Android. And both of those have kind of, you know, end-to-end -end encryption. So it seems like a non-starter to roll out this RCS thing, and especially when... There's so many worrisome vulnerabilities, they're calling them. Those implementation flaws, the researchers say, could allow texts and calls to be intercepted, spoofed, or altered at will. Uh, in some cases, by a hacker merely sitting on the same Wi-Fi network and using a relatively simple trick. Yeah, this was supposed to be, you know, the answer to SMS and sort of, I'm assuming, fix some of the security vulnerabilities that exist in, in SMS. But it sounds like maybe it wasn't designed to overcome those things. So I'm not 100% sure what it's sort of reason to be is here, other than replacing a very old system with a less old system. Yeah, the, the protocol SS7, which I think is the, the latest SMS implementation that we have, uh, is apparently from the 80s. Wow. So <laughs> that's a long time to kind of leave that open. <laughs> so I, I think the, the thing to take away from this article is that they're implementing something that seems to be slightly more secure, perhaps, than SMS, but less secure than the, the things that everybody else is using in, in the kind of technological world, like iMessage and, and WhatsApp, etc. They're probably on Steam to replace SMS with this thing, uh, and, and hopefully they can patch the hole. Yeah, I think Google have already announced to roll it out to all their US Android phones, so that's a bit worrying. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. So one of the cool things in the article is actually a YouTube video of someone essentially breaking this. On, on the same Wi-Fi network, etc., and and impersonate someone using spoofing technology. <laughs> I always like spoofing technology, as if it's a oh, it's great technology rather than just a you know method. <laughs> yeah, this is pretty bad. I'm gonna uh, stick to iMessage as much as I hate iMessage. I really dislike it mainly because of how much it stops me from going to other platforms, which I think is exactly its, its intention. Oh, absolutely. The thing with, with this and the, where the security flaws, I feel, really start to be important is with things like text-based 2FA, uh, text message-based 2FA, two-factor authentication. If, you know, you get, we're going to send a text to your phone. Okay, great. It severely undercuts the security of that that aspect of, of 2FA. And it, in fact, 2FA over text message has always been something It's like, well, it's, I guess, better than not having 2FA at all. 
perhaps, but it's still not, it doesn't add what, you know, what we would hope it would add. And this, you know, you would, you would hope that maybe this would solve those flaws, but clearly it's, it's not. Yeah. It's, it's introducing some, some really worrying, bad implementation. Yeah. Just watch some of the YouTube videos in the, in the wide article and, uh, it's crazy how simple an attack like this can be. Yeah. So moving on, the next article is really cool, actually. Cool in the way that uh, it describes lavish criminal lifestyles of Russian hackers. And one of them is a video of a Russian hacker falling off a Segway, which is just... I've watched it about a hundred times on loop and it is <laughs> honestly brilliant. Are there gifts of this? Yet? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Almost certainly. <laughs> I just love that the website is nationalcrimeagency.gov.uk. If it were nationalcrimeagency.com, that would be that's like such a like a phishing website. Like yes, come to National Crime Agency. Oh yeah. <laughs> it does it does sound, yeah. The the NCA is actually an official UK government office. Clearly, yes. And uh, yeah, I thought we'd link there instead of a normal news place. Yeah. So uh, the the story is a Russian national who owns uh, and runs Evil Corp has been indicted in the United States following unprecedented collaboration between the NCA, that's the National Crime Agency, the FBI, and the National Cyber Security Center. Evil Corp just reminds me of do either of you watch Mr. Robot? Mm. Don't they have E Corp on there? And they're trying to take down Equal. That is where they got the name. Right, okay. So, yeah, the US Department of Treasury is sanctioning Evil Corp as part of a sweeping action against one of the world's most prolific cybercriminal organizations. The coordinated attack is intended to disrupt the massive phishing campaigns orchestrated by this Russian-based hacker group. That's from Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. So yeah, I I think just the fact that they've released photos about their lavish lifestyles is quite a thing. If you look through the images, uh, there is a particularly grotesque Lamborghini that's like in a camouflage, but with like luminescent on it. It's like a camouflage that you don't want to stay hidden. It's very, it's very confusing. That sounds terrible. And the number plate uh, translates to thief. And uh, yeah, it, it, there's a photo of his wedding as well. Um, and it looks like the British TV show uh, Dancing on Ice. <laughs> or Strictly Come Dancing. Wow. Anna, have you, have you seen the, the photos of his wedding? I haven't, no. Are they in this article? Yeah, just click through into the article and scroll down. Oh my god. <laughs> it's it's strictly come dancing, right? It is. It's the ballroom, the glitter ballroom. Yeah. He spent a quarter of a million dollars on his wedding. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And is now subject to a five million dollar US State Department reward. The largest reward ever offered for a cyber criminal. So these are people who create and distribute malware for the purposes of extorting money out of people. So one of their viruses targeted small to mid-sized US companies without that didn't have robust cyber defenses, which resulted in $70 million in losses. They've also had victims that are a high school in a small steel town in Pennsylvania, a luggage store in New Mexico, and an order of Franciscan sisters who allegedly had tens of thousands of dollars stolen from them. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're pretty bad guys, uh, apparently living what I think is, is quite a trashy lifestyle. <laughs> like, y- you can have lots of money, but then if you buy a camouflage Lamborghini, it doesn't look like you have a lot of money. <laughs> or at least a lot of taste. Seems like the five million pound bounty is kind of in keeping with their usual spending. Then. Yeah, it's also, it's a weird um, news article to kind of put out there, right? That they've just put a five million dollar bounty on this group of people. I'm, I'm sure they're actioning it, but it, it's a weird thing to just suddenly declare. Like it's a public bounty or something. <laughs> like Like they're just declaring, hey, anybody, you know, If you can catch these guys, that's what it is. (laughs) 
So, Anna, what are we talking about today? Okay, so this week we're going to go through the WannaCry ransomware attack, which was kind of unprecedented in scale and caused worldwide chaos in May 2017. It hit businesses around the world, including Renault, Nissan, FedEx and Spain's Telefonica. It also held thousands of personal computers to ransom. And after only two days, it infected more than 200,000 computers in over 150 countries, costing approximately 4 billion in financial losses. There were reports that the Russian Interior Ministry and governments in India were hit by this too, along with universities in Italy and Canada and the Chinese police. So the scale of this seems massive, really. And we have Kyle from our security team coming on uh, to talk about it. Oh, thank you for letting me join. This is a lot of fun. No worries. So first things first, Kyle, can you tell me a little bit about how WannaCry got its name? Is it purely because it made everyone want to cry? <laughs> sure, yes. I think that's maybe where it got it in the end, but it, <laughs> it's sort of a, a shortening of uh, Wanna Cryptor. Uh, there's a bunch of different names that I had seen uh, in documentation and things like that on, on WannaCry in general, but it sounds like it's just a shortening of of WannaCrypt or WannaDecryptor or a bunch of these different sort of names around that, and it just got shortened like most things. Uh, to want to cry. Nice. Simple. What does it hope to do then? So it's a ransomware attack. You basically have a, a computer get infected. It basically encrypts a bunch of the user's private personal data and then holds it ransom. In this case, it looked like it was of $300 to $600 worth of Bitcoin. And the, the neat thing about this one is it could also spread itself. Its main sort of attack was to hold your data ransom as a typical ransomware attack did. How are you likely to get infected by this? So it's very unlikely that you get infected by this now. The issue that allowed this to happen was uh, resolved and fixed by Microsoft back in March of of 2017, and this shouldn't be something that anyone has to worry about anymore, uh, unless you're running really old systems without patches and applied to them. Does that apply to all ransomware, or is that strictly just of the WannaCry variant? So Microsoft's fix to this would just be more specific to WannaCry and its derivatives. For other ransomware attacks, it's possible that Microsoft could apply other fixes or detection mechanisms in their Windows Defender software, but very specifically the flaws that allowed WannaCry to propagate and spread have been resolved by Microsoft. Nice. Having those patches installed now means that most users are no longer impacted by this, at least by these derivatives that are known. So that's really interesting. Um, so once you're infected, how does it actually work? So WannaCry spreads very quickly using a couple of security vulnerabilities that security experts believe uh, were created by the NSA. And those tools that the NSA created were leaked by a, a small group called the Shadow Brokers. There were two weaknesses that were in Windows. One was called Eternal Blue. Uh, this is the vulnerability that allowed the attack to start. It allowed the attackers to gain access to each of the computers using the SMB protocol. Uh, it's a file sharing solution that, that Microsoft includes in all versions of Windows. Using this Eternal Blue exploit, they were able to get the data onto the devices. The second portion of the attack is called Double Pulsar, and that particular part of the attack allowed the tool to remain on devices. It's effectively the installer portion of it. Once it was installed, the tool would basically start to encrypt all the user's data and hold it ransom. 
once the data was all encrypted, the, the user would be notified that to gain access to their data again, they would have to pay a certain amount of money in Bitcoin and they would be given a key that would allow them to decrypt their data again. Do you think you would pay the ransom? if this affected you? That's a really good question. Most security experts are going to say, do not pay the ransom. They're not going to give you your data back. In hindsight, we know that they've never given anyone the key to unlock their data. So generally, it's a bad idea to pay a ransom. It encourages further malware attacks like this, uh, and and you're not going to get your data back. So you're just losing the data plus your money. Yeah, you can't trust them if they've already gotten into your machine how can you trust them exactly yes one of the interesting things when looking at this was that they actually don't know your money versus anybody else's money right like there's a messaging element between them this is the kind of thing that makes us think that they're not going to give you the key or or anything like that because they're just sitting on an account and going okay there's an extra 300 bucks in there now i'll have myself a nice day yeah they don't keep track on who has paid and who hasn't paid and that kind of thing yeah i doubt they have like a spreadsheet and (laughs) working it out (laughs) imagine that a a bunch of malware attackers with a spreadsheet an excel spreadsheet of who's been who's who's paid me oh (laughs) let me pay tax on this one (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So one thing about encryption is that you have a public key that you encrypt stuff with and you have a private key that you decrypt stuff with. And the thing that I don't get with WannaCry is how they hide that private key. Because obviously if if they embedded it in the software itself, some researcher would find it the instant that it went online. So how exactly does it encrypt your files? (laughs) Good question here, too. So in this case here, the WannaCry malware wouldn't actually hide the private key. It is available for a very short period of time. And there are a couple of tools that were created by other people who found a way to try to gather information about that key while it was still in memory and would allow them to effectively get the key to decrypt your data. So there are a couple of tools that allowed that to happen. But for those that didn't have the necessary tools in place, because this is this all happens in a pretty short span of time, if that tool wasn't available for you to use at the time, then the data would be encrypted and that private key would effectively be lost to some other encryption. Um, so it's sort of a like an onion. So how does it encrypt your files? What it will do is it it'll find all of the files that it wants to encrypt. It's then going to create an AES key. That key, one for each file, will encrypt the files that that it's determined that it's going to hold ransom. During this process, you also have a public and private key generated, as you had mentioned. And the private key, the part that will decrypt something that's encrypted with the public key, will get encrypted by another key. Uh, This other key is a public key embedded in the WannaCry malware. So this public key has a a corresponding private key that only the authors of WannaCry have. So we've sort of got this layer of encryption, several layers. So in order to decrypt your data, you're going to have to access the private key of the creators of WannaCry have. That key will then decrypt the private key that was generated on your machine when WannaCry started encrypting your data. That key then will allow you to decrypt the AES keys that encrypt your files. Uh, So a long sort of flow of how to decrypt data and encrypt that data. Wow. So the server online somewhere that keeps this private key, the day that we find that through the the onion network is the the day that everybody whose system was locked by this 
can be unlocked, right? Sure. So yeah, the the way that this would typically work is there would be a site on the internet. In this case, it was a site on Tor, and you would visit an Onion website that allowed you to effectively upload the key. And upon sort of having your uh, your payment, your ransom paid, would allow them to then decrypt that key for you and send it back. Uh, that that would give you access to the key that decrypts the keys that decrypts the keys. And so in a typical situation, I think that's sort of how a ransomware attack would work. I think we've sort of learned that this is not how that worked for WannaCry, but uh, that's how it should work, yeah. It's interesting because, like, they obviously designed this with a way that they could unencrypt systems. They designed this in a way that they didn't just throw away the private key. Why do you think they designed it in this way that it could work, but then just sat on the money <laughs> i think just sitting on the money is probably the easiest route right like the, the less work you have to do the better at least in terms of if you're the bad guy I, I think in general though we can sort of look at this as they just weren't prepared or there were flaws in the code or flaws in their process of how they were going to handle this or it became too big too quickly there's a number of possible reasons for it but i think in the end uh the easiest route for them was to just take the money and run. Yeah. So you wouldn't kind of deem this as a very sophisticated kind of attack? I think it actually is a pretty sophisticated attack in a lot of ways. I think it was sort of the first really, really big ransomware attack. Yeah. It, it, in that in that sort of way, quite sophisticated. It used a couple of very creative ways of you know impacting the users who were infected with this. Uh, it used a couple of tools that the NSA had generated and created, and, and they found those security holes in, in Microsoft Windows. They effectively put these things together to create uh, something that that spread very quickly and impacted a lot of people. Yeah. So from that sense, I'd say it's very sophisticated in, in terms of how it, it was sort of a new way of approaching this attack. And if you look at sort of the history of malware, I think this was a really big stepping stone to, you know, doing a whole lot of damage very, very quickly. And it, I think we've sort of gotten away from that a little bit. And now it's more like targeted to specific people. But at the time, I think WannaCry really proved to be a, a very sophisticated uh, attack in the sense that it, it did something different that no other uh, tools had really been able to accomplish in the past. There were two things that, that surprised me about this attack. The first was just how quickly it can encrypt things. I think I read somewhere it was about 700 megabits a second that it was managing to encrypt files. It's just like crazy. You couldn't, you couldn't catch that and stop it midway. And the, the second was how much attention they, they paid to the product, almost, right? This ransomware as a service. It was self-replicating, right, throughout the system using those things that we just heard about. And also it had some things in it that allowed you to still carry out the attack, even if the person wasn't then connected to the internet. It would do all this encryption and stuff, and then the thing that it needed to potentially send away, it would just sit on and sit on it well before it sent that way. I always thought that was really sophisticated to think about those things. Yeah. On the one hand, we can see that there was a lot of thought put into how to approach the problems that would happen during the creation of certain type of ransomware like this. One of the things that you didn't mention, I guess, was the domain that would effectively stop it from uh, continuing to encrypt data. And so, yeah, there's a lot of thought that they seem to have put into this from all the different angles. And then you look at it from a little bit further away and you see certain things just didn't work out like they had anticipated. There are parts of it that look like they wanted to be able to help people decrypt their data, but never did. And so you see like these sorts of 
different angles of it. You see, like on the one hand, they took a lot of effort and put a lot of time into trying to make it so that it could do these things and then never used them in the end. So it was really kind of an interesting sort of approach. Yeah, I'm kind of eager to see if more comes out about this as time goes on, because we still don't really know who these people were, right? I don't think we know exactly who, but we have seen some reports, and I think the U.S. government has also, as well as others who've sort of finalized their reports on this, point towards North Korea. But do we have any like specific information on who did it or whether it really was the North Koreans? I, I don't think we have any real specific information on that, but that's sort of the direction that it, a lot of official reports have indicated. I think if there were anything that I really wanted to kind of draw home on this, it's to keep your systems updated. Yeah. Uh, both systems updated and since I run our Buck Bounty program is the whole idea of submitting known vulnerabilities to product makers. This whole thing could have been avoided had the U.S. government reported these vulnerabilities to Microsoft to have them fixed. Had those been fixed earlier, then this whole situation could have been more or less avoided, I think. Right. And they obviously knew about them because they were using them themselves with these tools. Exactly. Yeah. The NSA found these vulnerabilities, created these tools. Those tools got leaked. And then WannaCry started effectively using these tools, uh, Eternal Blue and Double Pulsar, to spread malware and, you know, had those security vulnerabilities been fixed and reported to Microsoft sooner, then this could have all been avoided, yeah. I want to be on the committee to name security tools in the future. <laughs> do, you, do you think you can get me in there? That'd be amazing. Because I think all these things, the shadow brokers, uh, we talked about Evil Corp earlier. I think it takes a long while, maybe more time to write the names. Really? I feel like they're quite simple. Like they just came up with the first thing they could think of. Really? Shadow brokers? Yeah. Like Evil Corp, come on. All right, okay, that one takes less. But like Shadow Brokers, that's pretty good. <laughs> All right, Kyle, we're going to have you back on to talk more about different exploits and software and, and dive a bit more into the technicals. Sounds good. If someone wants to suggest something for us to talk about, to dive deep on the uh, technicals of, then please just tweet with AskOnePassword as a hashtag. <laughs> Okay, Anna, let's go to real or not real. So this week we have dogs are colorblind. Real. You're very confident there, Ray. I thought they saw in black and white. Is that technically colorblind? Well, okay, so it's not true. It's black, white, red, and maybe green, I think. But it is certainly a reduced color set from what we have. So you going real or not real? Yeah, no, I mean it's it's real to a degree. I'm going I'm going not real because they see in in black and white and then whatever you said. So I, I don't think that's classed as colorblind. Well, that's that's what's throwing me just a little bit. See how nuanced Anna got in the answer here. <laughs> so this is not real. The idea was widely accepted for decades, but new research and conclusions about canine anatomy and behavior have shown that while dogs can't see the same colors humans do, they do see colors and they can see much more than shades of gray. I'm calling that we got that right. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. I'm happy about that. Absolutely. All right, that's a good note to end on. All right, love you guys. Love you, Ray. Love you guys. Bye.